Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. Today, we're talking about guns. Guns have consistently been one of the most divisive issues in modern American history. With one side arguing for safety and the other side defending an American identity, few issues are as polarizing. About one-third of Americans personally own guns, and there are still more guns than people in the country. Every day, about 100 Americans are killed with guns, according to Everytown Research, and hundreds more are shot and injured. The gun homicide rate in the U.S. is 25 times that of other high-income countries, and yet we have the laxest gun laws. More young people have been killed by guns since the Sandy Hook shooting than U.S. soldiers have been killed since the 9-11 attacks. The attacks in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio earlier this month marked yet another deadly weekend in America. The El Paso shooting was the deadliest shooting this year and the seventh deadliest shooting in American history. Demands for common sense gun reform are back in the headlines, as is Trump's predictably wishy-washy response. Before we get to what's happening in this election, let's talk about how the politics around gun control have changed over the last decade, because they've changed quite a bit. After the shooting in Sandy Hook, two things happened. First, Obama came out with a series of low-impact executive orders. And second, the politics really shifted for Democrats. It used to be that Democrats felt like they had to be for guns in order to give them political cover for having more progressive positions in other areas. After Sandy Hook, that felt like it was no longer the case, especially since the Senate failed to pass a basic background checks bill. The new Democratic standard moved more towards pro-stricter gun laws. That shift was reflected in the NRA's approval grades. In the last nine years, the number of Democrats with an A rating from the NRA went from 29 percent to 1 percent. Despite the fact that the politics have shifted, the laws really haven't. I mean, what has Trump done on guns? Well, I mean, exactly what you'd expect. He's mostly stuck to the NRA line, promoting, quote, solutions like arming teachers while ignoring some of the key areas that could limit gun violence. However, he did diverge from NRA policies when he banned bump stocks, the modifications that turned semi-automatic weapons into automatic ones. Meanwhile, he sought to roll back regulations. He reversed the Obama-era policies that made it harder for people with extreme mental illnesses to buy guns, and he said he wants to make concealed carry the law of the land. So let's contrast that with the array of 2020 Democratic candidates. So as a baseline, everyone supports strengthening gun measures in some way. Most of them, they want to do it by implementing universal background checks and red flag laws, as well as banning assault weapons in higher capacity magazines. But some candidates like Booker, Harris and Yang are getting more creative with their policy ideas. And though Eric Swalwell has already dropped out of the race, he's centered basically his entire campaign around this issue. The pervasiveness of gun violence in the U.S. has really motivated people, particularly young people, to take action. There were over 2 million attendees at the March for Our Lives protest from 90 percent of all the congressional districts in the country. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Patricia Oliver, who lost her son Joaquin in the Parkland shooting. But to first understand the complexities of this issue and where the candidates stand, I spoke with Chelsea Parsons. Chelsea is the vice president of gun violence prevention at Center for American Progress, a nonpartisan think tank. There, she advocates for new gun laws related to gun violence prevention and the criminal justice system at all levels of government. Before she worked for American Progress, Chelsea was general counsel to the New York City Criminal Justice Coordinator. In that position, she helped create and implement initiatives in a variety of areas like human trafficking, sexual assault, family violence, firearms, and more. 
She also served as the Assistant New York State Attorney General and Staff Attorney Law Clerk for the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Chelsea Parsons. I am the Vice President of Gun Violence Prevention Policy at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. And what we do at CAP is really dig into the research around gun violence um, and then help develop policy solutions that we think will have an impact in reducing gun violence in this country and making our communities safer. Let's dig into the election. There's not one single solution to the gun violence epidemic in America. It's a very complex issue, weaves through a lot of different areas. And so a lot of the candidates' policies in isolation, like each one of them, can be written off as kind of not effective. So what do you see like the ideal package of ideas to make a difference on this issue? That is a crucial point for voters to understand when we're thinking about and, and evaluating how candidates are approaching the issue of gun violence. The national conversation around this issue, as it is led by kind of mainstream media, is often overly simplistic, right? So we often only have big national debates and conversations about gun violence in the context of the, the most recent, most horrific mass shooting that has happened in this country. And so as a result of that, we we often have, you know, a, a somewhat stunted conversation about what would actually be effective in reducing all different kinds of gun violence, right? And so it's really important to understand exactly as, as you put it, there's not one solution. We don't have one bill um, that we think would have, would have the biggest impact on reducing gun violence. There are unfortunately a lot of really serious problems with our current approach to guns in this country, both legislative and non-legislative. And so um, to really have uh, a big impact, you need to take a comprehensive approach. So we really should be looking for candidates to have packages, to have a comprehensive approach to how they would address this issue. I would also say that what we should be looking for from candidates is for them to have a relatively nuanced view of this problem. There is not one gun violence problem in the United States. There are a few different gun violence problems and the solutions for each of them are different. There is a problem of uh, homicide caused by guns in this country, right? And that is a problem that is um, largely con concentrated in urban communities. And that is a problem that has a certain set of potential solutions um, that are really important that, and that deserve a lot of attention. There is another gun violence problem and crisis in this country related to suicide. That problem is largely concentrated um, in rural communities or in suburban communities. Um, and the solutions to that problem are very different than how we would approach homicides by gunfire. We have a problem of mass shootings that, that happen in this country and of individuals targeting locations where lots of people will be in order to, frankly, commit an act of terrorism, right? And so the way we address that is going to be different than these other problems. I think that what we should be asking the candidates to do is to really understand each of those kinds of problems and be thoughtful about what are the approaches that are appropriate to address each of them. We often talk on this show about like what the baseline of support is on an issue. You know, we see a baseline of support among candidate platforms. And do you think that's the right baseline of support? It feels like on guns, the baseline of support among Democratic candidates seems to be universal background checks. I mean, is that the right place? Should it be a different issue that all of the candidates are focusing on? There's a really big disconnect between where actual... American voters are in both parties and where the the politics of this issue are. And so polling shows us that even re 
Republican voters really support universal background checks in, in, in high numbers. So background checks is, is really the floor. What we're starting to see in the platforms that, that are being released by the candidates on the Democratic side are kind of a handful of core uh, policy priorities that, that I think really do form the, the kind of groundwork for, for a comprehensive approach. So universal background checks is one of them. Support for either an assault weapons ban or for a new, more stringent form of regulation of assault weapons and high capacity magazines. Support for research and providing funding, federal funding to research gun violence from a public health perspective. That is something that I think is is. Uh, a foundational piece, and, and you're seeing most of the candidates include that. And then from there, there are a handful of other issues that that really do form kind of the core. So uh, the issue of domestic violence is a, is a really big one when we're talking about gun policy. And so there are some federal bills to close certain gaps in the federal law that allow certain domestic abusers to continue to have guns. I think that is a a foundational priority. There's a new-ish policy called Extreme Risk Protection Orders, which is a policy that is designed to give family members an avenue to try to disarm a person who is in a temporary period of crisis. And so this is a policy that is really picking up a lot of support. Um, It has implications both for suicide prevention as well as for preventing kind of more um, high-profile mass shootings. And so that's a policy that you're seeing pick up a lot of traction. Um, And then the last piece that I think is really a a core foundational principle in, in this space is Uh, prioritizing additional funding for community-based violence intervention programs. And and that's something that, you know, for decades, there's been a lot of work going on very hyper-locally to try to intervene um, in in retaliatory cycles of violence. And those kinds of programs have really started to gain um, a lot of support and attention nationally. And so you're starting to see more talk about making sure that we are actually committing the funding to those programs that they need in order to be successful. So it sounds like the kind of baseline package of where most of the candidates are on the issue of gun violence prevention is actually pretty satisfactory to you as an expert. It sounds like where the candidates are is in a a pretty good place for combating gun violence prevention. I mean, have you seen platforms that are really stand out to you and really go above and beyond? It's really funny. I have been doing this particular work now for about six and a half years. And It is amazing that we are currently in a campaign season where this is the level of attention the gun violence issue is receiving and that we have so many candidates who have such robust and comprehensive approaches to it. Um, This is just frankly, unheard of when it comes to this issue. And so the politics of this issue have really evolved very, very quickly, which is just remarkable. So so that's really exciting. I think that 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 signals that we are really making tremendous progress on this issue. And it's, and I say that because I know that people feel very cynical about the gun control issue because of the fact that it has been so difficult to get bills through Congress and through this particular Congress. But I think that we are in a much better place on this issue um, in terms of making progress on policy than we have ever been. And so I think that that's really exciting. 
one of the things I'll say that I think is really interesting about some of the plans that are coming out is both the kind of breadth and depth of policies that are getting attention, but also the approach to the issue. And so by that, I mean, we have candidates who are putting forward legislative priorities, which are really important, but also focusing on the need for executive action, um, recognizing that, you know, we don't know what the next Congress is going to look like. And so you know, it's great to have legislative priorities, but it's also great to understand that you may not have a Congress that you're going to be able to get them through. So I think, you know, Senator Harris was one of the first candidates out um, with a comprehensive plan to address gun violence, and hers is really focused primarily on executive actions that she would take in office. And I think that that is um, a really smart approach to the issue, and it it really picks up on the legacy of, of the work that President Obama did in, the sec- in his second term on this issue. The laws haven't necessarily caught up to where the American public is right now, but it does feel like the shooting in Sandy Hook was a real, it was a real linchpin moment on changing the politics on this issue. You know, not just the shooting, but then the reaction to the fact that the American people was so behind a a legislative change. And then the Senate was unable to pass a bill. Can you talk a little bit more about how the politics have changed? It wasn't that many years ago. No, that's exactly right. And I think that you know, unfortunately, the the politics of this issue have kind of evolved with a series of horrific mass shootings, right? And so, unfortunately, that is that is how the American public kind of tends to be brought to this issue, right? And and what we know is that you know the the high profile mass shootings really don't represent the most common experience of gun violence in this country. We know that there are many many communities that are kind of daily terrorized by um, acts of gunfire, and and so you know when we're developing policies, we really want to be mindful of that. But in terms of the the shifting politics of this issue, I think you know we've had we we had this dynamic where Sandy Hook happened, and I think for most people that was probably the most horrific thing you could imagine happening. And then you had the situation where very moderate, um, common sense bills failed in the Senate. And I think that there was a, a kind of national feeling of just deep disgust over the state of American politics that that could happen. And so we had that moment, and then we kept having more shootings. People really started to internalize this feeling of it could happen anywhere. It could happen to me. It could happen to my family. That, I think, is what really helped get us to a place where when we then had the shooting at Parkland and you had the high school students saying, how dare all of you let this happen? That all of that building on itself, I think, really became a a crucial political turning point. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we would see Democrats either trying to not talk about it or touting their pro-gun positions. But now that really was not the case among candidates that we saw running in, you know, very marginal flip districts that ultimately ended up flipping from Republican to Democrat in the 2018 election. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think what you're starting to see more and more is that, you know, the conventional wisdom that more moderate voters, independent voters, Republican voters are not supportive of stronger gun laws has really has really been debunked. I mean, I think that, you know, 
what what you saw in 2018 was candidates really learning the lesson that this is a winning issue. This is not just an issue that you don't have to avoid anymore. This is a winning issue. You can run in districts like the district where the NRA is headquartered in Northern Virginia that have traditionally been conservative on this issue. And you can run on a strong gun safety platform and win in that district. For a long time, a lot of candidates um, would rely on the framework of starting with, I support the Second Amendment. And you would, they would always start there and then say, but I also support you know, background checks or I also believe this and that. And you're actually now starting to see candidates lose that crutch and not feel like they need to qualify their support for stronger gun laws by reasserting over and over again, and I also support the Second Amendment. Many of these candidates, I think all of them, are currently elected in a position. Um, have we seen them take real action on it? You know, many of the candidate, presidential candidates who are running are members of the House. Many of them are governors who have, you know, executive actions or executive power within their current roles. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, this at the beginning of this Congress in the House, we had, you know, one of the leadership bills is H.R. 8, which is the Universal Background Checks Bill. And that bill, you know, passed the House. Uh, it passed with bipartisan support. We actually had um, more than one. Uh, we had, a, we had a, you know, a strong handful of Republicans who supported that bill. And so that was a really big shift in, in finally getting something out of the House. And did all of the Democrats who are running for president, who are members of the House now, did they all vote for that bill? Did they all support that bill? They did. Yes. And, and what about some of the governors as well? The Senate, unfortunately, we've not seen so much action. But what about we the governors? Have not. They had a role in actually taking action? Some of the governors who are running are from, you know, Western states where the, the politics of the gun issue have been more challenging. The first governor to really have, you know, a big comprehensive approach is, is Governor Hickenlooper, who, who released a really comprehensive platform that has a lot in it. It's, it's incredibly detailed. Um, you know, one of the things that he included in there, which I think is interesting, is this focus on ATF, which is the federal agency responsible for regulating the gun industry. And so that's something that I think, you know, more candidates uh, will need to take a look at and kind of how to deal with ATF. It's an agency that has been kind of deeply troubled for decades and is one that the next president will absolutely need to figure out how to deal with. You have somebody like um, Steve Bullock, who has dramatically shifted his his views on this issue and who used to be NRAA rated and not supportive of gun policies and who has just kind of gone completely in the other direction now and is supportive of background checks, is supportive of an assault weapons ban, which in Montana is not necessarily a common position. So you've seen people evolve on this issue almost in, in real time. I'd actually like to pause on that thought for a moment about the fact that candidates are, you know, evolving on the issue. You know, our first guest, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had said that she thought that the most important thing for voters was to see authenticity from the candidates. I mean, do you think that people are really going to buy these evolutions? You know, you mentioned Bullock. It was recently as 2016 that he rejected universal background checks, but he's not the only one. You know, in 2008, Gillibrand ran on a pro-gun rights platform, touted her NRA rating from the NRA. Bernie Sanders often gets hit for the same parts of his past. I mean, do you think the evolutions are real? Like, do you think voters buy it? Or do they just kind of care they ended up in the right place now? So I think that that's a good question. And I think when you have a field that is this big, then you kind of have the luxury of having that, of asking that question, right? Of like really digging into whether or not somebody's current position maybe started from an authentic place. I think, you know, where I end up on that is I'm looking for candidates who are supportive of and are driving policies and driving ideas that we know 
will have an impact on saving lives. And I think that I welcome everybody who got here. The path that and how long it took you to get here, I think is something for, you know, primary voters to examine. And, and you know, for me, what I have seen, I I find, you know, the, the, the folks who have evolved on this issue, it appears genuine to me. I mean, I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of people. I think, I think this issue is one where for many people, you know, it was easy to ignore it or to or to to not prioritize it until some shooting really deeply impacted you right and and i think we've gotten to the point where enough communities have been deeply impacted that these these candidates and and these elected leaders really do feel that. I mean, I, you know, i think that there's only so many times that you can hear the stories of people who have survived these shootings and not be moved by it. So of course this is all in contrast to Trump, like, right, like a strong contrast to where Trump is on the Republican side. So here's the thing with Trump is I actually don't think he has any particular moral center when it comes to this issue. I think when he had Parkland survivors in after that shooting, he was in that room saying we should do Senator Feinstein's assault weapons bill and you guys are afraid of the NRA and, you know, we should not have due process and just take the guns away. Right. And then and then the NRA called him up that night and said, like, hey, tone it down there, you know. So so I really think that for Trump, what's guiding him on this issue is the the support from the NRA. He has gone to every one of their um, annual meetings and he every time he's there, he's, you know, they endorsed him very, very early. You know, no president has gone to the NRA convention as much as he has. And so that is, that's his core, right? Is And he says, I will never let you down. You know, I support, I will support your second amendment. And like, that's what it, what it is. I, you know, you see glimpses every once in a while where common sense pops through and he's like, oh, yes, we should have an assault weapons ban. And then, you know, that that drops away. Some of the candidates are proposing executive actions versus what they're proposing through legislative action as part of their proposals. You know, Harris has said that she'd take executive action on guns within the first hundred days of her presidency. Klobuchar also listed a number of actions she would take on gun violence prevention. Are they focusing on executive actions because they think there's just no chance of getting anything passed through Congress at this point? I do think that it's it's very smart for candidates to be thinking about what else can they be doing other than a legislative agenda just in case Mitch McConnell remains the the majority leader in the next Congress. Um, and again, you know, this is something that in the second uh, in the second term of the Obama administration, President Obama really did a lot of. I mean, there were two different really comprehensive executive action um, packages that that the administration put out after Sandy Hook that re-energized the community when it came to how can we work on this issue. And I think, you know, it part of that also is, again, people get really frustrated and start to feel this is an intractable issue and an intractable problem that we can't solve because Congress can't pass bills. And so I think that having ideas for executive action, as well as focusing on the, a lot of the progress that's been happening at the state level, is really important to keeping advocates kind of feeling positive about this issue. So seeing real change, they, they can stay engaged and push for the bigger things. Um, and what are some of the, the big takeaways from those executive action packages that Obama passed? You know, are what the 2020 Democratic candidates proposing now are they just sort of putting those things back into place after Trump repealed them? Are they building on it? Are they new ideas? You know, one of the big things that, that President Obama did in his last um, set of executive actions was to really focus on trying to get at a system that's closer to universal background checks without 
without actually needing the law to be changed. And so the way that you do that is by reevaluating the standards for who is required to become a licensed gun dealer, right? Because licensed gun dealers are all required to conduct background checks. But the regulations and the law is a little unclear about um, how many guns do you have to sell and what kind of business do you have to have um, in firearms before you should be considered a dealer and before you should have to get a license. And so one of the things that Senator Harris has in her executive action um, package is to, again, look at this issue of who are licensed gun dealers and at what point should a person need to become a licensed gun dealer if they have a business in, in selling firearms. Right. So like who's not included now, but would be included in, say, like an executive action under a Harris administration? Yeah. So what Senator Harris is proposing is that is really just saying if you sell more than X number of firearms in a calendar year, you need to get a license from ATF. There is a, a, a deep culture within kind of the gun owning community of wanting to have your transactions kind of off the grid. Right. And so so there is a market for vendors of firearms who are not licensed dealers, who are not required to conduct background checks and who will sell you a gun without any paperwork. That's why this persists. The Second Amendment had previously been one of the like lowest litigated amendments, but that's now changing as the courts are starting to take up more cases, particularly when the executive actions that you're seeing in 2020 candidate proposals. Like, do you see them as being constitutional? I do. Right now, the Supreme Court has held that the Second Amendment gives you an individual right to possess a firearm in your home for the self-defense of your home. That is the full scope of the right. And Justice Scalia, who is one of the most conservative Supreme Court justices in modern U.S. history, wrote that opinion. And in it, he specifically said that the Second Amendment right is not an unlimited right and that it is subject to reasonable regulation, just like other constitutional rights. And, and in fact, he, you know, there's a there's a sentence in there where, you know, he wrote specifically, you know, our decision today is not meant to cast doubt on the constitutionality of some, you know, current restrictions on gun rights um, that currently exist in the law. So the mythology around the Second Amendment and the scope of that right, you know, is one that the NRA really exploits to try to shape the national conversation to say that you can't enact restrictions on, on any kind of guns or on, on the ability to own guns or carry guns because it violates the Second Amendment. And, and that's just frankly not true. And the Supreme Court has never, has never decided the issue of whether or not the right, the, the constitutional right, extends outside of your home. So whether or not um, restrictions on the ability to carry a firearm implicate the Second Amendment, that's not something that's ever been decided. And, and in fact, lower courts have upheld restrictions on the right to carry as being completely uh, consistent with the constitutional right. So, so all of that is to say there is a lot of room within the current articulation of what the Second Amendment means to be able to enact laws that more strongly regulate the ability to own, carry, sell, store firearms. How much do you think having a candidate support a strong platform on gun safety affects election outcomes? One of the lessons out of 2018 is that for, the, for big parts of the Democratic base, it's really important and it's a must have. So, you know, I'm thinking about the March for Our Lives and the kind of the youth vote. And what we know is that for young voters, this 
is a core priority. Um, and not just because of school shootings and not just because of Parkland, but because of how young people have grown up in communities around the country impacted by gun violence, whether they live in a community and have seen classmates and family members killed with guns, or whether they live in a community that hasn't been directly impacted, but they've grown up with lockdown drills in their schools. You know, kind of young voters are very, very concerned about gun violence. And, and for them, this is a really core, a core issue as they are evaluating candidates. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say is that one of the other changes on this issue since Sandy Hook is, you know, kind of the grassroots movement for gun violence. And, and, you know, there are a number of organizations that have really built up strong grassroots around this issue. And so, you know, you see at town halls, you see people really demanding that their representatives take positions on this issue. And so, you know, I do think that this has become kind of for the base, at least one of the core issues that the candidates need to be addressing. And I think that that's reflected in the fact that this early in the process, you have so many candidates who do have comprehensive plans on it that they put out. We've used a lot of terms in this conversation. What are the best terms to be using? Like, is it gun control? Like, I feel like that's kind of a term of bygone, but like, should we be using it? Is it simple? Like, is it gun violence prevention? Is it gun safety? Is it something else? Yeah, these are excellent questions. So I think that by and large, uh, the advocacy community has veered away from using the, the term gun control, primarily because it was very effectively weaponized and kind of co-opted by the NRA to say, you know, any kind of policy related to firearms is all about controlling your guns and taking your guns away. I am starting to see where, you know, it used to be in kind of the 90s and the, and the 2000s, you know, it was really about crime. And it was really about how do we punish criminals who commit gun crimes. And that narrative is almost entirely absent from the current conversation about gun violence in this country. And, and I think that, you know, how we are starting to talk about it and frame the issue is really around uh, public health and around, you know, how do we approach this issue from a public health perspective that includes a criminal justice response, because clearly gun violence is a crime and, and, there, and there's a criminal justice element to it, but that shouldn't be the focus of the framework, right? It, it, we should really be approaching this as gun violence in the United States is completely out of line with all other high income nations in the world, right? So the gun murder rate in this country is 25 times higher than in our peer nations. Upwards of 40,000 people every year are killed with firearms. So that is a crisis. It's a huge problem, and we are obviously doing something wrong. And so for me, you know, whether you call it gun control, whether you call it gun violence prevention, whatever you're calling it, it, it is less important than the substance of how you're proposing to address it. Patricia Oliver lost her son Joaquin in the Parkland Massacre. Just a little over a year later, to honor what would have been her son's 19th birthday, Patricia and her husband took a trip to El Paso and found themselves in a morbidly familiar scene. I spoke with Patricia about her experience. My name is Patricia Oliver. I'm an activist. I have an organization that is called Change the Ref. And so you became an activist to keep your son Joaquin's memory alive. And, and so that is how your husband Manuel started painting these large murals. 
so this last week was Joaquin's birthday, and that led you down to El Paso. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Uh, we got an invitation like a um, couple of months ago that they were really needing our our voice there at El Paso regarding the migrants that they were suffering, the you know all the cruelty, all the separation between their being in concentration camps. I said, of course, I would love to be there and do something for all these people and families because, you know, we are, we are parents and we know exactly what it feels to be separated from our kids. So what about if we plan everything for Joaquin's birthday because we want to honor Joaquin in an in a important way that Joaquin can raise his voice through us and can do, uh, make a difference and bring some hope that they can have a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And then we were there in El Paso. The day after we arrived, we went to Juarez and visited a couple of these families, listening to them. Meanwhile, I was having a um, few texts saying that if I was okay. So to me, it was kind of weird. How come people is going to ask me if I'm okay? No. I went to one of the persons that was there and I asked, do you know what's going on? Because everybody's asking if I'm okay. And she said, well, there is a mass shooting in El Paso. And I said, oh, wow, crazy that I was so close to that place. Did it feel like deja vu? Of course, it felt like a deja vu. Seeing the people like didn't understand what was going on, seeing the concern of every faces that they were surrounding us, people that was with us and knew who we were, thinking about us, oh my God, these, these parents are here and passing by the same situation, but at the same time, was there no situation? Really, you are really lost in those moments. They're so lucky to have had you around, to have been through it, but it's a role that, that nobody wants to be the expert in that situation. Oh, no, no, of course not. No, 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 no. That, that's something that scares me the most. How come now you're going to become an expert? How come you're going to accept that this is something that is going to be normal or about to be a new normal? That is something that really concerns me the most. Are you hopeful that there will be change? I know you're, you're lending your voice, you and Manny, um, are keeping Joaquin's voice alive by traveling the country. Are you hopeful there'll be change? I am hopeful because I've been on the road maybe 30 months since this happened to us. And I've been seeing people that is not related with this kind of tragedies that he just decided to say, okay, I'm with you. What can I do? A lot of people feel powerless. They maybe haven't been personally affected and they want to help you. I hear this from a ton of our of our listeners that they just, they want to know how to help. And so you and your husband, Manny, will be touring the country over the next year and a half with a show uh, called Guac, My Son, My Hero, a show which is a story about your relationship with your son, Joaquin. Can you tell us about that and how people can find out more information? So in this case, we're talking about Guac, My Son, My Hero, which is a place about the life that Joaquin had with us. Joaquin was a beautiful and nice kid. Joaquin was a regular person, so we wanna we want people to know and to connect like any other kid in their family. He has the things, we were a regular and ordinary family, and that's what we want to show to people. And because of gun violence, now we are this family today. It's 
terrible, but it's true. But I have to deal with those emotions and keep going. And keep going because I feel that it's needed for me to keep going and to raise my voice and to give an example that I am a mom, that I am a woman, and that I'm able to do something for the good of other people because we have to touch hearts. Thank you, Patricia. Patricia Oliver, mother of Joaquin, activist, thank you so much for joining us and lending your voice so that other families don't have to go through what you went through. Thank you so much for joining us. 